Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, when we talk to the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, often it's about the price of gas. It's about a new tax being brought in. It's about those types of things. It's not often about real estate. But this morning we are talking about real estate. One particular piece of real estate that is actually costing the taxpayers of this country quite a bit. And let's bring in Aaron Woodrick, who is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, to talk a bit more about this. Aaron, good morning. Good morning, Jill. We are talking about uh, 24 Sussex Drive, which probably isn't on the radar of most unless you uh, live in that city. Uh, But it's certainly uh, something that all Canadians have a stake in. Yeah, it is. You know, it's not a building I think most Canadians could pick out of a lineup, even if they were presented with a picture of it. Uh, it's the Prime Minister's residence here in Ottawa. But the funny thing is, is that the Prime Minister doesn't live there. Um, Justin Trudeau did not move into the building when he was elected in 2015. Uh, the building is very old. Jill, it goes back to Confederation, um, but hasn't been renovated in 50 years. Uh, and so obviously, you know, houses need to be kept up. This house has not been kept up. Uh, and so nobody lives in it. He lives down the road on the grounds of uh, Rideau Hall, which is where the Governor General lives. But it still costs us, this house, 24 Sussex, costs us more than a quarter of a million dollars a year uh, just to keep the electricity and lights running and the grounds kept. And we think that's a waste of money. We think uh, this can's been kicked down the road long enough. And it's time for the government to make a decision and either tear it down or fix it up. And if it was in B.C., it'd be subject to the empty home stacks. <laughs> well, exactly. There you go. Another reason to, to get moving on this thing. But, you know, it's, it, is a, it is a strange anomaly uh, in this country. You've got a government right now that's running big deficits, $19 billion. They promised to balance the budget. Uh, and yet they're reluctant to spend a few million on a home. Um, that we all own. It's, it's not as if it belongs to Justin Trudeau. It belongs to all of us. Um, so I wish it was the other way around. I wish they were a little more circumspect about spending the billions uh, and recognize the practicality that we're wasting money, spending money in a house that nobody's living in. And, and I guess people will look at the optics, and I get that too. And I think Stephen Harper came uh, came under fire a bit for renovations as well, which which is a bit. Uh, I mean, nobody expects uh, the leader of the country to live in a, in squalor or to live in a house that's falling apart. But on the, at the on the flip side of that, the optics of a prime minister spending all of this money on his own house doesn't look good either. Yeah, look, I understand why. It goes back actually to Justin Trudeau's dad. When Pierre Trudeau lived there, they put a pool in, and that actually had to be paid for with private donors because they didn't want to spend taxpayer money on it. And generally speaking, I think that that sensitivity to you know wasting money is a good thing. Generally speaking, but um, you know if this were a if this were a working building, if this were the Department of Finance or something, and the roof was caving in, no one would suggest that we don't fix the building. So I think that's the way we need to look at this here. And as I said, uh, whether they fix it, whether they tear it down, they need to do something because wasting uh, wasting a million dollars every four years for, for no reason at all is is not a good long-term plan and is the pushback or some of the pushback is it deemed heritage yeah it actually is not that is actually not an obstacle and that's another interesting part of this debate is the building itself a lot of experts don't see it as being particularly architecturally significant it is a it's a pretty run-of-the-mill building um, it's actually been it was renovated several times before you know the 1950s and 60s so it's not as if it's the original building um, and that's one of the reasons I've argued we might want to tear it down because you know in this country Jill we're often groping around for some kind of symbol some kind of unifying uh, thing that we can all get behind well this is an opportunity to do that 
And I think if you had a competition, if you invited prominent architects to submit some bids, you could actually get this built, uh, you know, reason at a reasonable price. And it could actually be a sort of fun national project for us that would have an, an actual practical purpose rather than just building, uh, you know, a monument in a field somewhere. We'd have a building that all our future leaders would get to live in. And I would imagine, too, I mean, this is a prime minister who's all about fighting climate change and being uh, being uh, talking about the environment. Uh, this clearly, uh, because, just because of its age and the fact that nothing's been done on this house it's it's not going to be an environmentally friendly house uh, but i'm sure whatever could be built there in its place uh, would be yeah well exactly I, I think it probably is one of the most energy inefficient houses left in the ottawa area at the, at, given the fact there haven't been renovations in so long but it is uh you know it is unfortunate it is unfortunate that it's crumbling uh, you know, where, wherever you fall in this debate, you know, even people who want to keep the house, uh, they agree something's got to be done about this because the longer we wait, the higher the bill is in the long run. And, and do you get the sense that people would prefer it be kept because of the history in the house that it be kept and renovated and brought up to, to today's standard or that people would be okay with tearing it down? You know, uh, judging on comments, which are not always an accurate barometer, I'd say it's an even split. Uh, some people make the case about it being historical. I, I'm not a, I'm not an architectural expert, so I don't want to, you know, weigh in too strongly on that. But there are, have been a number of people who've said it's actually not that significant architecturally. Most of the important things about it are related to the fact that prime ministers live there, not the actual structure of the house. Um, and the flip side is a lot of people say, yeah, tear it down. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing location overlooking the river. Um, you know, we, as I said, we could have an opportunity to build something iconic when you think about places like the white house like 10 downing people can picture you know what it looks like uh in their mind maybe we could develop a house uh, like that for a prime minister well we'll uh, we'll see what happens with it like you said so it's, it's costing us a quarter of a million dollars a year just to, to have it sit there just to have it sit there. <laughs> All right. Just before I let you go, I want, I want to shift. And last time we were talking to you, it was about the uh, petition about governors uh, general yeah. still being able to have expense accounts. Anything different there? Or did you present uh, the petition? We did. We actually delivered it last week. It had almost 50,000 signatures on it, so pretty significant. Uh, you know, we, we started a number of petitions, and some resonate more than others. And this is one that, again, across the political spectrum, uh, people just don't understand. You know, obviously, when we have a governor general in office, we pay for their expenses. We know it's an important role. Uh, but once they're gone, you know, 13 years after you've left office, why are you billing taxpayers more than 100 grand a year? And furthermore, not even explaining what it's for. I think that's just totally unacceptable and outrageous and something's got to change. The Prime Minister has said they're reviewing it, so that's a start, but we'd really like to see them uh, put a lid on that policy. And like you said, and, and this was part of it too, I think why it's resonating with people, that that even if, if we're okay with former Governors General still acting in that role, if they're being asked to speak somewhere or do something that's related to the role, even though it's a bit of a stretch because as you've mentioned there are people that that still do speech speeches and still do things after they've left their jobs uh, it's the transparency and people still want to know okay fine but if you're spending taxpayer dollars we want to know where you're spending them and and that you're not wasting them well, yeah, that is that is the bare minimum here, and I expect that is the bare minimum they will change because you know, as we know, for people who are prominent like Adrian Clarkson, uh, she also does uh, she also makes money off some of her speaking engagements, and I think people would be very upset if they found out that what they were subsidizing was essentially the overhead for commercial enterprise. Right? It's one thing to reimburse people. Uh, for volunteer works. I think, you know, in our case, we, we don't even know if that's necessary here because other people do volunteer work and don't get reimbursed, but it would be totally inappropriate for her to be billing taxpayers when she's actually charging money for, for certain events. All right. So we'll be watching to see what happens there, if there are any changes as well as uh, with the 24 Sussex Drive uh, as well. Uh, Aaron, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yep. Thanks a lot, Joe.
Well, you might have heard this on the news. 2018 was a record year for the number of attempts made to defraud BC Hydro customers. Not exactly the record you want to see made, but BC Hydro is out with this information uh, with a warning for customers and ways to make sure you don't fall victim to these scammers. And joining me on the line is Maura Scott, who is a spokesperson with BC Hydro. Maura, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Was there one particular type of scam that you saw uh, targeting BC Hydro customers? There's basically two. The scams kind of evolved over the over the past few years, but basically how it works is it involves fraudsters contacting our customers by phone, email, or text and threatening immediate disconnection if a payment is not received. So to avoid disconnection, customers are asked to go out and purchase a prepaid cash or credit card. So one of those like Visa prepaid gift cards you get at the grocery store. Or they're asked to deposit money into a Bitcoin ATM. And basically, once the fraudsters receive the credit card information or the Bitcoin currency, uh, the money's gone. There's no way of tracking it. And in some cases, our customers have been out hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And and I think people listening would think that it's a red flag when you have somebody with a reputable company with something like BC Hydro suggesting that they want payment in prepaid cards or Bitcoin. But people still do, not to suggest that 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 it's the victim's fault, but people do still still agree to that. Yeah, I mean, the unfortunate thing is we know that they're targeting both residential and business customers, but we've actually heard a lot of reports from um, many restaurants and small businesses. So restaurant owners and managers, for example, have reported that these calls come in just before their lunch or dinner rushes. So their restaurants are full of customers. They can't afford to lose the business. And some of the red flags that would normally pop up in that kind of situation just get missed. Um, They're so desperate to not cause any disruption in the restaurant that they just go out and meet the fraudsters' demands, unfortunately. Uh, the release that was put out uh, said that uh, Vancouver, Nanaimo, Surrey, Vernon, Burnaby and Richmond are the most targeted communities. So any idea why those particular communities are targeted? Um, I think it's mostly due to population and and opportunity. You know, we've really seen this scam game momentum since 2014. We've received more than 6,000 reports of customers being contacted by the scammers, and 2,000 of those came in 2018 alone. Um, And while these numbers are significant, we know that they're underrepresented. We know that most people don't actually call in um, to report the problem. So we believe it's much higher um, basically in every area across the province. And any idea where these scams originate? Or are the calls coming in locally or the international calls? Yeah, so we, we've been working with um, provincial and federal law enforcement agencies since the beginning, but these scams aren't just isolated to BC. We're seeing them um, across Canada, across the United States, and they're targeting utilities all over the place. So it's really hard to determine exactly where they're coming from when everyone's sort of getting hit with the same thing. And I'm guessing too, when these calls come in, if you try to call the number back, you probably go, get nowhere. Yeah, so basically what the scammers are doing to add credibility to their scam, they use spoofing technology. So it makes the caller ID um, display BC Hydro's name and phone number. Uh, it's uh, amazing what they, the lengths that uh, they will go to, to to try and look legitimate. Um, are we finding, are there any cases where people are actually uh, posing as BC Hydro employees in person and trying to rip people off in person? We have heard a couple of cases like that. That's been going on um, for several years. But um, where we're really seeing the highest volume is these these phone, text, or, or email kind of type scams where, where people are demanding an immediate payment so that they, they don't get cut off. 
So what do people need to know in that if you get a phone call from somebody claiming to be BC Hydro, uh, does Hydro ever call people? Yeah, no. So there's a few things that we want our customers to know. So one, we don't um, collect credit card or bank account information over the phone or by email or text. And we would never accept payment in the form of the prepaid cash or credit cards or Bitcoin. Um, Two, if your account is in arrears, we'll send several notices by mail or use an auto dialer to remind a customer to make payments. And customers can always check their account status online anytime at bchydro.com. And finally, um, the biggest thing we would say to customers, if you ever doubt the authenticity of the phone call, you should just hang it up immediately. You should give us a call right back at 1-800-BC-HYDRO just so that you know that you are actually talking to a BC Hydro employee. And will they do, I know with banks, uh, they'll often make sure you are the right person and ask security questions so people can rest assured when they call 1-800-BC-HYDRO, they are getting a legitimate person, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Well, it's good information. And unfortunately, uh, these scammers are getting more and more sophisticated. But uh, thank you for coming on and sharing this and uh, making sure or trying to help people so they don't fall victim to these scams. Uh, Maura, thank you so much. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, if you live near green space or near any of the amazing parks in Metro Vancouver, you might not think about this too much. If you don't, maybe it is on your radar. But some new research out of UBC takes a look at income levels, education levels and proximity to green spaces. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Lorian Nesbitt, a postdoctoral research and teaching fellow in the Department of Forest Resources Management at UBC's Faculty of Forestry. Thanks so much for coming on the program this morning. Hi, good morning. Uh, what exactly, you looked at various cities uh, in the United States. What were you looking at uh, as far as green space and population? And population. So we were trying to get an idea of how green spaces are distributed across various different types of urban areas and cities with different backgrounds, different urban development histories. So that's why we chose a variety of large urban areas in the United States from the West Coast to the East Coast, South and North. And what did you find? Um, We found, kind of surprisingly, that um, income and education were both pretty strong predictors of where green space was and where people had best access to vegetation in their neighborhoods and parks close to their house. So people who have higher incomes or have more education, we're more likely to be able to access um, uh, trees around their neighborhood. Parks, to some degree, we saw this relationship, but it was much more equitable. Um, And then we also found that racial background had some influence in some cities, particularly in larger cities that were denser. Um, So people of color often had uh, less access to vegetation in their neighborhood. And was there a big did big difference between the two in that? I think when we think about parks and some of the cities in this research, say if you take New York City, people will automatically think of Central Park or they'll think of these big park areas. But it's interesting when you mention trees, it's also that, that proximity or that access to not just these big parks, but also trees and vegetation. Yeah, that's a really good point. So Park access is really important for, you know, trips to the park on the weekend, maybe, especially in the case of Central Park. 
But if you think about what kind of vegetation and what kind of nature we're interacting with every day, it's not usually parks unless we're really fortunate to live really close to a park. And so the trees and other vegetation in front of your house, in your backyard, um, on your walk to the bus in the morning, that's the nature that you get to interact with on a day-to-day basis. And this is even more important if you are, for example, a low-income person who maybe doesn't have access to transportation easily to get to a larger park or get out of the city to go hiking on the weekend. And in your case, then, having residential access in your neighborhood to nature is really more important. And did it look at or did you find why there was this difference or why it was linked to income level or education level as far as how areas are developed then or or how much vegetation is is available? So it's hard to tell because we did such a large scale analysis and um, I think there are probably different factors operating in different cities. Um, In a lot of ways, some of these uh, divisions kind of reflect some of the inequities that we see in other parts of society, right? So um, what this is telling us really is that trees and green spaces and parks are things that we value and that they are sort of an important amenity in society. And so those who have more wealth, more education and more power tend to have better access. Um, Unfortunately, because these resources are so important for our health, we need to do something about this um, inequitable distribution. And so although uh, you know, our society sometimes doesn't divide our resources equitably. We need to try and do something about this so that we can all have a healthy and good quality of life in cities. Because uh, I know there have been examples too, even in Canada, of developments that are fine. You can build this development, but it has to have a certain amount of park space. So, but uh, there there have been cases where that park space didn't have to be attached to the development. There just had to be a trade off that there would be some park space uh, somewhere, and and it could that that could lead to this this this. Uh, situation where in some areas there would just be tons of development and the green space was was shipped off to somewhere else. Uh, So like you said, then, are are we looking at it needs to be better distributed throughout cities and throughout neighborhoods to make sure there's not areas that are all that are without it and maybe other areas that have way more? Yeah, that's a really good point. So some cities, many cities will require green space to be built when development happens and it can go anywhere or they can, um, a company can sort of contribute to a development or a green space fund and then the green space isn't necessarily around that development at all. And we did find that there was a strong relationship between population density as sort of a proxy for this built environment and green space. So the more density you have, the lower the green space was often. And so this, I think, is another way in which, as you said, green space can be shifted away from denser areas um, where you often have um, the lower income people living. And um, I would really like to see us thinking a little more creatively about how we're developing our, um, you know, high and medium density areas so that there is green space around those areas, because it's um, it's not necessary for us to continue with the development model where we have, you know, large single family homes with lots of big trees and then apartment buildings with very little green space access. I think we can be more creative than that and bring green space um, in a real way into neighborhoods um, all over the city. Uh, the, the the data, the information to, took a look at 10 major cities that you mentioned in the States. Were there, was there one that sticks out from that list that, that there was even the discrepancy or was, was much more clear or that you could see that people with the higher incomes and more education had way more compared to, to other places? Yeah, definitely. Um, there were a few interesting cases. So uh, Chicago was one that showed a 
a, a large role for um, racial background. So people of color and people of Hispanic background had much lower access than um, people who identified as white. And then um, New York had a really strong role for um, education and Los Angeles had a stronger role for income. Uh, so it looks like some of these larger cities where people are maybe competing for space a little bit more, where it's harder to um, find space for those trees in your neighborhood, or where you see um, wealthier, more educated people and um, uh, people, uh, white people having better access to, uh, to trees and nature in their, in their neighborhoods. And the the city closest to Metro Vancouver, I think, on this would be Seattle. And people often make a lot of comparisons between the areas. Was Seattle similar in your findings? Um, Seattle was uh, relatively equitable. There was some lower access for people of Latino background. And there, um, people who have higher educations have a little bit more access to greenness. But uh, there wasn't a really strong um, inequitable, inequitable distribution of greenness. Um, and then Portland also as another sort of city that's relatively similar to Vancouver uh, did show that uh, people who have higher incomes and have more education did have better access. But uh, Portland in particular is making a lot of effort to change that. So they have policies where they really look at the distribution of trees and green space and target those uh, low canopy, low income neighborhoods to make sure they have enough trees. Um, and I, I would imagine we could start doing that in Vancouver as well. And do you think it does shift us back or, or, or makes us more aware, especially since we talk so much about density in Vancouver and we talk about the population growing, uh, just how important it is to have that access to nature and to make sure we're building it with those green spaces in mind? Yeah, I sometimes find that the, that the conversation in Vancouver is really focused on housing and that's important because housing is so expensive in Vancouver and it's really hard for a lot of people to access. I understand that um, as a, as a postdoc at UBC. And um, I, I think that um, as we talk about housing, we can talk about providing good access to nature in cities at the same time, not as a trade-off. Um, and once again, this goes back to being creative in how we're developing our neighborhoods and maybe developing more mid-density with um, smaller gardens and parks and little treat areas around um, around our buildings that we're developing. And I think that, I mean, there's many reasons why this is important. So we have uh, climate change adaptation requirements. Our cities are going to get hotter. Um, we need to have that shading from trees. But also, I think we all kind of know that as humans, we need contact with nature. Um, it makes us feel better. And so providing that as we provide housing is really important. Um, I, I've done some other research where I've talked to different urban forestry experts in different cities. And one person put it well when she said, well, when we, when we build social housing, we don't say, oh, well, they don't need running water. Um, but we don't really prioritize trees in that same way. And so I think as we start to move forward, we can start hopefully prioritizing nature as well as good housing. All right, uh, we will leave it there, but thank you so much. Uh, Very interesting research. Thanks for sharing it with us today. Thank you. We have been focusing on health news and cannabis all this week as the uh, health series continues. And this morning, we're taking a look at uh, that but we're bringing in our pets and taking a look at that part of our family. Uh, joining me on the line now is Darcy Bomford, the founder and chief executive officer with TrueLeaf. Uh, Darcy, thanks so much for being with us. 
My pleasure. Good to be here. Uh, how much research uh, has been done or how, how long have we been looking at the idea of cannabis-based treatments or, or foods and such to help pets with various ailments? Well, it's been around for a while, you know, uh, not a significant amount of time, but for, for sure, at least the last uh, seven to ten years. And, and and talk a bit about True Leaf and what you do as far as being a wellness brand and focusing on pet health. For sure, yeah. So we uh, entered the marketplace in 2015 with our, our line of hemp-based supplements for pets. And uh, we took a, a legal route to market it originally by using hemp seed, right? So we, we uh, developed a formulation so we wouldn't fall under the cannabis regulations. But we use hemp seed, which doesn't contain any psychoactives from uh, marijuana or CBD from hemp leaf. So, yeah, we marketed the product in Canada and U.S. and Europe. And uh, we're just still also waiting for a recreational license in, in Lumbee to produce medicinal cannabis, which will allow us to sell CBD products in Canada, uh, hopefully sometime next year. All right. And would that also be for pets or humans as well? Uh, well, both, we hope. You know, our focus for the company right now is uh, medicinal products for pets, um, but the license will allow us to make products for humans too. It's, it's kind of a, a difficult situation in Canada right now. Even if you wanted to buy cannabis for pets you'd or CBD for pets, you'd essentially have to buy it from a, uh, a legal provincial store or online. But unfortunately, uh, veterinarians can't actually sign that medical document for you for pet products. You actually have to get one from your doctor. Are, are you concerned that with recreational marijuana now available that, that people might take it upon themselves thinking uh, medicating their pets with what they're purchasing at the approved dispensaries? Yeah, you know, it's... Sorry, just to give you... Forgive me, I'm in the airport right now, but yeah, sure. for sure it is a problem. And, um, education is a big part of the process. And that uh, you know, people are doing more and more research themselves, and they're finding that uh, in some cases, uh, you know, CBD does work, and they're most likely buying recreational product that's CBD focused for their pets. Although um, technically, it's uh, you know still illegal in Canada. And so, your products that are on on the market, like you mentioned, the hemp-based products, what what type of ailments in pets are they targeted at? Uh, well, primarily CBD is, is uh, well, our products are, are hemp seed-based, correct? So uh, right. we're, we're uh, using hemp seed, which is rich in omega-3. And then uh, we add, a, add other active ingredients that help support uh, hip and joint function, help provide calming support, and also omega-3 function. And, and so would it be pets that are anxious, or, or would it be more medical issues like arthritis or that kind of thing? Uh, a little bit of both, yeah. So we have three products. You know, one of the product problems with uh, some of the other products in the market these days is, uh, you know, CBD is claimed to cure basically everything, right, from cancer to anxiety to arthritis. Um, but our formulations are targeted, so we've developed uh, three different recipes, basically one for calming. So we use uh, hemp seed, which is rich in omega-3, and we use an extract from green tea and uh, calming herbs like lemon, balm, and chamomile. And then we have a hip and joint product, which has curcumin, which you know is you know pretty popular these days to treat uh, inflammation. And then uh, then we sort of have an everyday omega three support that uses the the 
omega-3 from hemp, but also from fish oil. So we have uh, omega-3 from both a plant and an ocean source. Hmm. And do you think it will be a big change when, uh, if we do shift to more going from, like you said, you're outside of that, that model right now with being with the hemp seeds and the, the hemp leaf, uh, with the shift to cannabis and, and such, will there be a, bit, a big change as far as what will be available for pets? Uh, we're hoping so. You know, the road to market in Canada right now is a little difficult. And, and uh, as you may have heard in the U.S., CBD effectively has gone the nutraceutical route because of the farm bill that was recently enacted in the U.S. Uh, CBD derived from hemp leaf could could be used as a nutraceutical, right? Although we probably wouldn't be able to label it as CBD, you'd have to call it hemp leaf. But in Canada, uh, for example, if we wanted to sell a CBD product for pets, we'd... Uh, have to have a license or be a licensed producer in Canada and fulfill all those requirements. And then we'd be able to either grow our own medicinal cannabis that was high in CBD and extract our own CBD, or we'd be able to buy CBD from hemp farmers. But then the actual product that would be sold, uh, you, you know, you'd only be able to buy it in approved provincial recreational stores or possibly online under the medicinal cannabis program. But then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it, uh, a vet can't actually sign that medical document. So it's kind of tough, really, for consumers. You know, there has been a lot of CBD products on the market and available in pet stores in Canada. But I think now you're going to see them disappear as uh, some of the regulators clamp down on that. Hmm, which is, I guess, kind of the opposite of what people uh, were expecting. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, changing times, you know, and that... I think the government uh, may take a different tune as they see, you know, some of the pushback from consumers. Uh, from our point of view, I mean, uh, we're we're still waiting for our license, but we expect to get it uh, sometime this year. So we'll we'll be in a better position to produce CBD products, but it still won't be available essentially in pet stores, right? You'll you'll still only be able to buy them at uh, provincial recreational cannabis stores, which is kind of an odd place to buy a, a medicinal pet product. It does seem, though, and I guess is the concern that that people might try these products for human consumption if they can purchase them at a pet store? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, we have uh, salmon chews for pets, so you know, it wouldn't taste that great for people. <laughs> and uh, all, you know, all of our formulations are focused on pets. But, yeah, we have seen, though, you know, a lot of the uh, companies in the cannabis space have actually just relabeled their bottles of tincture and said, oh, it's good for pets, too, right? So that's where, you know, I guess you could say regulation is a good thing, where you test for quality, you test for the actual amount of CBD in the product and make sure it's made under good manufacturing protocols, right? So uh, eventually, I think the system gets sorted out and hopefully there'll be more product in the market and our pets will be healthier and happier as a result. All right. Well, that uh, sounds like a good goal for sure. Uh, Darcy, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks a lot.